Hey everybody, this is Mel and Brooke from Mom's Art 2. Okay, before we start the episode, stop listening right now and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to watch us make a fool of ourselves, subscribe to our YouTube channel at Mom's Art 2 and get video episodes each week. All right, on to the show. (laughs) (laughs) We are just two moms in search of inspiration. While creating questionable comedy. Moms are too. <laughs> Silly. <laughs> Silly. <laughs> Today's episode is a flashback to 2020 with the Winter Rosen. There are five weeks in May. And we wanted to give you a little bonus. Plus, we have Winter coming back in the next couple of months, and we wanted everybody to be familiar with her story. So when we come in and catch up, y'all feel like you know her already. Please excuse the Zoom call quality, but boy, this is a doozy and so worth the listen. You can follow Winter Rosen on Instagram at Winter Rosen. That is at W Y N T E R. R-O-S-E-N, or on Instagram at Las Bamb Bitches. Let's get to it. It's Miss Brooke and I here joining us. Uh, is one of the most talented women we know. She is living currently in Panama. She is originally from Canada. She is a singer-songwriter, a composer. She dances, she's all around lovely, and has multiple children. So she balances <laughs> it all. So please welcome Miss Winter Rosen. Winter Rosen's in the house. How you doing, well, Mom? Thank you so much. That is quite the introduction. Oh, yeah. All right. So tell us a little bit about how you're doing tonight. What is happening in your world this evening? Right now, I have a house full of teenagers downstairs in uh, Ezra, my son's tattoo studio, and they are just having a lot of fun. It's really awesome to to see them all gathering there in that space, especially after going through such a long COVID period where nobody could get together. And I have just been having a very nice night getting prepared for my awesome interview with you two. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we've known you a long time, long, long time. I mean, yeah. what I met, I think, I mean, I met you in probably 2010 when I first moved to Panama and Mel, I mean, you met her around that time, right? I think I actually met her through you. I was okay. not in any mommy groups. I did not have children at the time. That is correct. Oh, yes. I, I I met you through through Jesse through Jesse. Oh, Jesse Schoberg. That's right. And we had a night at the casino. Holy we mother! Had- that's right. That was our first meeting. <laughs> we were at a casino in Panama, which was uh, what's it called? Anyway, yeah. if you go there and you like the ladies, that's the place to go. And we did. We had our night there. We hung out. We had dinner first. We had dinner and drank so yeah. much alcohol that yeah. I didn't remember just now how I met you for the very first time. <laughs> 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 That's right. So tell us a little bit about just where you're from. We know you're not from Panama. You're not from the States. 
Yeah. Um, I'm from I'm from Toronto, Canada, born and raised. On the playground is where you spent most of your days. Okay. Uh, all right. So <laughs> Toronto, Canada. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you were brought up and your your history back then. Oh wow. Well, I was brought up, uh, you know, all of my aunts and uncles on my dad's side of the family were musicians and dancers. And my dad was a trombone player and played in many bands. And my uncle Sonny was a conductor of the Philharmonic Orchestra. So I grew up with a lot of music and art in my life, Um, always singing in the house. And my mom was just a beautiful wonderful also like great painting and art and and i grew up in that kind of environment for the first part of my life and then you know as you get older and your parents you know i I grew up with a very interesting father my dad was the last one of the last survivors of alcatraz oh my and yeah and uh you know he was a bank robber he <laughs> what is happening i, I thought this. we were going to yes. talk about I your music no, <laughs> let's we're through the music winter we are going here tonight mom's art too we're talking about daddy's a bank robber go get it it's true it's true and you know the funny thing is is we probably never had this conversation before because for most of my life it was something i didn't talk about it was like you know, when in my teens, when my dad was in and out of jail after the whole Alcatraz thing, which was before he met my mom, um, and me growing up in a very, you know, there was a lot of uncles and aunts in my house. I was really raised not to talk about anything, so I did it. And then I was ashamed about it. And I really felt like that was the big reflection on who I was. And it took me a lot of years to overcome that and understand the benefits that I got from that lifestyle, that it wasn't shameful, and that anything that I did in my life in survival mode was okay. And how was I going to take all of those situations and put them towards my parenting on what never to do? Right. (laughs) And what to do. And what you do. So, well, and you had a really, you had a really interesting entrepreneurial spirit about you, even at an early age. I remember having conversations with you about, didn't you start making jewelry or what, what was your first endeavor as a craftswoman? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, my, my dad was an antique dealer. You know, he flew all over the world doing things but the whole sort of cover of it was antiques and he had an antique store and they would go into the mall you know and set up like antique big antique shows and when I was very young and my dad went to jail I said to my mom why don't we see if there's some sort of show that we could do in the mall because the money was great Uh, and I remember saying why don't we make jewelry do you remember when that big very huge, chunky fashion jewelry became so popular. Mm-hmm. So I went to the bead store and I, and I got tons and tons of beads and everything. And I started to make a bunch of necklaces and bought a bunch that were already done for almost no money. And my mom and I booked into a mall 
and you know just set it up with pictures and magazines and we sold out man i had like such a great business from that in, from that and doing that at a super young age and you know i was always about i wanted to make money because most of the time i wanted to get out of the house so i was like what am i going to do and you know when i was a teenager and my dad went to jail we went from living in like a very beautiful home with everything to having nothing because all the money had been spent on lawyers and whatever had transpired and so my i i moved my mom into this little tiny tiny shack of a house and my mission from that moment on was how do i make enough money to get out of here and um so i did everything you know but that was my first first taste of oh my gosh i've got my own little business here in that little shack of a house it was a big piece of property and i decided you know i'm going to throw some parties <laughs> so i got a bunch of the guys from the football team this is i think like in grade 9 or 10 and i got cases you know we are, we we arranged cases of beer a flat bed truck and <laughs> a band the high school band and we and i charged uh, $10 to park your car and to get onto my property and that party i mean a thousand kids from school must have shown up it was unbelievable like it was so crazy the police station was at the end of my kind of field So at that time I went to the police station and I told them I'm going to have a little party and I had researched <laughs> out like if there was going to be bonfires where the hoses need to go so I did everything so I couldn't get in trouble. You and are a trip. I am cracking up right now yeah, because that's crazy. like yeah, well, let's go to I'm going to go tell okay, I'm in hi, I'm a freshman in high school and I'm having a huge party in high school. Can you just tell me exactly uh where the fire codes are for the bonfire? I was worried about having well, boobs. I knew like <laughs> negotiating I, the local police. I was so calculated. I was like what could go wrong and how do I prevent it because I would I went to the you know remember the drive-in movie theater? Oh yeah. I went to the drive-in movie theater with invitations and just handed them to every teenager like you know all of a sudden No, there was a thousand people there, and I and I knew there was going to be a lot of people there. I had that party three years in a row. Everyone was just waiting for <laughs> you know the annual party until the fourth year. The police came and they were like, "No more parties." My God, that's incredible! But that was like my high school money. That was that was really fun. She's like it lasted me the whole year. Yeah, <laughs> until next year. <laughs> When you were in that place of thinking. as an entrepreneur and learning how to make money and stuff what was your next step into adulthood uh tell us a little bit about uh Mr. Malachi which is your firstborn son um and how that was being so young having a kid and with that entrepreneurial spirit how did you balance that oh my gosh like that was such a journey well first of all um uh, when i had Malachi, you know, I I met his dad. It was at a nightclub called the Gasworks, which was a really very popular iconic rock and roll bar where like, you know, the Sex Pistols had played and big bands would go. The Gasworks was iconic. And um 
Now, by that, by that point, I was making a lot of money. You know, I had, um, so my dad, you know, I was living in this little house with my mom. I was having the parties. I started to get older. My dad got out of jail. He came back to the house. Things were really rough. And I started stripping. Mm -hmm. I quit school. I started stripping. Now, at that time, it was a very different world. You know, there was no table dancing. There was no hooking. And I really made a very big point because I saw so many things in that world that I kind of also wanted to educate people on because I met so many great girls. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got a really big understanding of why girls go into the world of stripping. It's not like you just go, oh my gosh, I can't wait to be a stripper. You know, it's not like that. <laughs> no. um, and you see, you know, sometimes, it's, it's, but yes, sometimes, but it, it, you know, it's very, very rare for me. It was like, I need to get my mom out of this situation. I need to buy a house. What am I going to do? And so I went into that full force and how old were you? I, what's that? How old were you when you started? I was, um, I was underage okay. and, and got away with it. So I guess I was 18 going on 19. Okay. And I became a feature dancer right away. And I was actually so nervous about it, but I knew I had to do something. Like the situation at home was very bad and there was no money left. And uh, my mom was suffering and um, I went into the most busy bar called the Million Dollar Saloon, the most high-end strip bar. And I went in and I- Well, that sounds like it. Yeah, totally. the million dollar saloon. That sounds like the high yeah. end. Go ahead. Yeah. You go. <laughs> and I went in really in the back of my mind of going, okay, I wonder if I could do this. Like, can I do this? I was, it was very hard for me. And um, I went in and I said, I would like a waitressing job. And the manager of the, the dancers looked at me and he said, oh my God, like I will start you off as a, um, showgirl dancer right away at $2,000 a week. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And you didn't, at that time, you didn't even get fully naked and nobody could touch you. And it was shows and the girls were beautiful and it was a very different world, but still, it was still taking off your clothes and I was scared to death. So I went and I told him, okay, okay. That's great. That's what I need. So he drove me for two weeks. I went to outside of Toronto to a little town called Hamilton. Uh, I told my parents I was going to get trained to uh, be like a bartender. It wasn't surprising to them that I was underage because I always looked older. I always behaved older. And anyway, uh, they must have, you know, smelled something in the air because the second week I was in Hamilton, (laughs) <laughs> yeah they did <laughs> that took me a minute I'm not I'm not quick today <laughs> you know they must have their the energy must the energy must have been in the air because the second week that I was in Hamilton dancing I came out on stage and my mom and dad were in the audience <gasps> Holy mother. What? And father. Yeah. 
it was it was really brutal. It was so really they brutal. Did they like follow you there or something? Yeah. They, well, they knew where it was, and oh, it was, I told out. them where I was going to be. But I told them that I was, you know, waitressing and learning to bartend. Mm-hmm. But they somehow they knew. And uh, were they there was, with a with roses like opening night? I know. <laughs> they couldn't tell me anything. You know, I had survived so much and I had no respect for my father at that time. So it wouldn't have mattered what he told me, even though I was, you know, he was a scary guy. I still was like, I'm not listening to you. Like, because I, you know, I didn't have any respect because of what had happened, um, which that dynamic changed a lot as I got older. But basically, they wanted to see what I was doing. They wanted to see the environment that I was in. My dad went outside. It was the first time I ever saw him cry. And he really was so defeated, you know. And I I didn't understand it so much at the time. But I think for a parent to know that your child needs to resort to a lifestyle that is not ideal, because it's not, um, made him feel like he was such a failure, and had really failed me and I understood that and you know and he just told me if you ever do drugs and if you don't save your money I'm gonna break your fucking neck that was his words to me and then they firing <laughs> yeah I'll make sure that our next warm-up before we go on stage together that'll be our announcement <laughs> to you <laughs> and let me tell you something at 21 years old I bought my first house in cash for my mom get out of here yeah i made a hundred thousand dollars i bought that year i bought the house and the following like six months later the real estate market in canada went through the roof and i sold that house and i bought another one and i flipped it and that was really how i started making my money um i went to um miss new world i won it out of 350 girls in indiana and my price for dancing went up to $6,000 a week. And I'm from Indiana. Oh, my God. Did you see her dance? What year well, was it? Miss New World. Big, it was, and Miss New World was there. I mean, it was the place. Where girls from all over the world flew there for this, you know, it was Playboy and Penthouse and the magazines and everybody. And if you won that or you did well in that as, you know, being in the world of exotic dancing, it was a big thing. <laughs> I need to know. I need to know. Look, I I had a lot of friends who danced lots and I was in that world uh, partially. So I, you know, I totally get it. So yeah, I was just like, that's, um, that's, I'm even more struck by you. (laughs) So that's, that was my story up until I met Danny. And when I met Danny, and you know, my mom had her house, I had my cars, like I was in a great position. I met Danny. I fell in love with this, you know, punk rock, singing, dynamic, unbelievable talent, like so much dynamic, I can't even tell you guy, but who was as goth and as punk rock as you can imagine. And I was like the girl in white and we were so opposite. And I fell very, very madly in love with him. And within that year, got pregnant with Malachi and I stopped dancing. Hey, 
everybody. I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about this new thing that we found is called Moonlight. It's amazing. We're still reading to our kids at night, and I can be honest with you, sometimes it's tedious because we're reading the same book over and over and over and over. Well, let me tell you, Moonlight is incredible. The magic of Moonlight is simple. It's the experience of reading together with a projection on the wall because tablets, yes, are a staple for many families and digital books can be overstimulating sometimes for little kids. And honestly, they leave little room for imagination. But Moonlight bridges the gap between traditional and digital books. There are playful projections, vivid sound effects, and read-along features make this multi-sensory story time a delight. Moonlight is here to help you create imagination-filled, interactive bedtimes for your whole family and make story time magical again. Use the code MOONLIGHT10 with our link to get an extra 10% off your purchase. It's very cool. You having Malachi young and still having this artistic spirit about you, didn't you get into interior design and and you were doing chandeliers that kind of blew up and and I have one, mm -hmm. thankfully. Thankfully. But but so give us kind of the timeline of when that started and where you were in your life um, as a mother. And so, okay. So I had a lot of jobs. I was um, bartending, uh, which is where I met Julian at like a really popular bar in Toronto. I was bartending. I was go-go dancing. I was working at the Sky Dome. I was waitressing. It was like, I was full on, you know, take kind to of my mom's go back over here work till three in the morning go back and pick up my you know it was like a rotation of work and I was thinking to myself what am I going to do with my life like I can't this is not what I want to do I want to have time with my kid I'm just working 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 um I was supporting myself and I want to interject really quick here how long do you think that was when you were you had Malachi, you were going, going, going. Where were you in those years where it flipped and you went, fuck this, I'm doing it, I'm making the change? Well, how many years do you think you were uh, balancing all of those jobs until you made the switch? Well, I was always working towards something. I just didn't know what it was. I knew that I didn't want to be waitressing. And I didn't want to be go-go dancing and I didn't want to be bartending. I knew that I wanted to have something, but I didn't know what it was going to be. So it was sort of like, if I have to do something that I don't really want to do or love to do, what am I going to take from that experience to make it worthwhile so that I'm not wasting my time? So what did I do? I, You know, I learned how to make every kind of drink as fast as I could, and I made it as fun as I could. And I just thought, there's something out there for me, so how am I going to save money? Because being a single mom, paying for a place to live, all now, now by this time, you know, I had sold my houses, I had gone through a lot of money with Malachi's dad, 
And because I got out of the world of stripping, which I was making so much money, going into the real world, making almost nothing, that was like a big adjustment. And the money just sort of went very, very fast. And I found myself living from paycheck to paycheck because, you know, I also paid for everything with Danny. Like the money was just, you know, everything. So I didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew, okay, I've got this job bartending. So every single penny that I make from my tips from this job gets banked. And when I would work late, I would go to the bank machine every night, no matter if it was four in the morning, and I would deposit my tips, deposit my tips, deposit my tips. From my waitressing job, I paid my bills. And if I got a really smashing tip, which I did because it was a very expensive restaurant, and I had some customers there where sometimes I got like a $500 tip, it was like from the wheel, that boom, in that bank account for save, this for bills, this for pleasure. And I did that for three or four years until I managed to save up $20,000. And then I, you know, and by this time I had met Julian, he was only 21 years old. He started helping me, you know, babysitting. He was babysitting Malachi when Malachi was like one and a half. And it was so cute because he was so young. And one day I said to him, I need to take a trip. I'm going to go see my girlfriend in Whistler. I'm going to go to the mountains and I just need to figure out what am I going to do with my life? I'm sure the answers will come because like so many things in my life, I've been very fortunate with that answers coming to me in some way. So I'll never forget. I was walking through the mountains. It was beautiful. I didn't know anybody. I was by myself. My girlfriend was not with me. And I found this little tiny store. It was one of those paint your own pottery stores way ahead of its time, way before any of those stores had opened. I had no idea what it was. And I went in and it was so tiny and I saw this pottery and I, and I, and I was like, well, what is this? And uh, she said, it's paint or pottery store. I want to paint something. So I took a teapot and you know how you get set up. She showed me what to do. And it was, you know, you just get lost in this world. I, and I was sitting in this beautiful little shop in the mountains with the snow falling. And then I heard her on the phone and she was, you know, maybe she was like 30 and she was beautiful. And she was in the store and she was the owner and she was like, yeah, so we're all going to meet at the store. We're going to have some wine. We're going to paint pottery. Then we'll go for dinner. And as soon as she said that, I was like, I'm going to do this. Like that was just like, <laughs> I'm going to do this. And I started asking her about franchising and questions and asking her how much she enjoyed it. She was like, I love it. I make really great money. It's my first little store. Yeah, I guess I can franchise. Anyway, I was so excited. I didn't know anything about pottery, but I knew how I felt in that moment of painting that. And I was like, this is where you go. It's like how I feel in the recording studio. Now you just go into another world. And I got back to my girlfriends and I was like, I need to leave. I got on a plane the next morning. <laughs> I, read, I got home. I told Julian, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to open a paint your own pottery store. But because I was also an artist and I love to paint, I figured I can paint my own stuff. Maybe I can sell it. Mm -hmm. 
He said, well, you don't know anything about pottery. I was like, I gotta figure it out. So the next day <laughs> I opened up the big, huge yellow pages under ceramics. And I see this sign that says Dodic design and I call it and, and the girl, this girl answers. And I say, do you sell greenware? Like I started doing some reach, re, which is the pottery before it's actually in the kiln the first time. Yeah, and yeah. I said, um, you know, do you, do you sell greenware and do you sell pottery? And she said, no, I don't, but I'm actually a store and I sell all my own pieces of Judaica. Uh, but I can tell you where to get this stuff. I'm happy to give you my supplier. And I said, well, that would be amazing because my idea is to open to paint your own pottery store, but I also want to paint my own pieces. And she said, well, I'm actually ready to sell my business and I want to go to Vancouver. Maybe you'd be interested in coming and meeting me and buying it. And what? I was like, I went, I went there the next day. Her business was $15,000. It came with four months of training. I bought all of her designs on the menorahs and the Seder plates and everything. And she trained me. And I took over her business and I bought it. And that was how my first business came about. And I called it The Marvelous Mess. And it was the first paint your own pottery store in Canada. And I had lineups down the street on my first day of opening the door that within a month, I moved to a bigger location up the street and um, became very well known for the original pieces that she was designing. But I took those pieces and my own pieces to a New York gift show at the Javits Center a year and a half later and found a booth and my business became a very big wholesale business of Judaica. It grew to 470 countries that carried Winter Rose and Signs. And from that, I opened three stores. One was called Sugar Pants. One was The Marvelous Mess. One was Winter Rose and Designs and Sugar Pants was the store I opened to give Malachi a job. So I put in a nice cream parlor and it became like a co-op with an art gallery. And my rent was very little. By this time I was making chandeliers, wholesaling them. And um, when I had the pottery store, it was my way of having my little child with me all the time because I had a fun space for him. So that was how I got out of the world of stripping, bartending and that life and became you know, a designer and my designing world started from, from that. The Winter Rosen Designs was home interiors and the furniture and the sugar pants was the co-op and the marvelous must was the paint your own pottery. And it was, it was a successful so chain of things. It, this is incredible because this is also one thing that I think we as women sometimes need to hear is that as overwhelmed as we are, and we, we do, we have to take care of everything. And, and even if we're not the breadwinners, we have to make sure everybody's happy. We have to make sure everybody's fed. We have to make sure everybody is paying the bills and everything. But you n didn't necess necessarily know where you wanted to go. You knew that you needed to make, to start the page. This is going to be the page where I start putting money away. And then when the opportunity and the thought and inspiration arose, you snatched onto it. You knew how it made you feel. Yeah. And you didn't know where it was going to lead. You didn't know even if you had enough money to put away or what it was going to be. But you followed the string to where it led you. And even if that woman said, I would love for you to come to work in my store, 
it would have been a lead for you into that. So it didn't matter that you already, yes, it's great that you already had the money because you've already put everything in place, but we have the instincts and we have those intuitions in us that we sometimes put aside because we're just dealing with everything else. And we have a tendency to be able to put ourselves on the back burner, which is noble, but it's not going to make you happy. Yeah. And I'll tell you, every, everything is about the intuition. Everything. Uh, your gut will tell you and, and you have to listen to it because it's there for a reason. And that is in everything you do. It's when you know that you're, you know, you walk into someone's house and it's, you know, maybe there's someone that makes you feel unsafe. You getting into the car with somebody, you know, you always know. And that's why we look back and we say, geez, I knew I shouldn't have done that. Or, you know, or I'm so glad that I did do that. Or I missed an opportunity because I didn't do that. I, you know, one thing I really like what you said, though, too, because I and I can relate is even in the, that time when you knew you had a bigger picture for yourself, you weren't sure what that picture was. However, in the moment while you were socking back cash, you were going to make the best drink and mm-hmm. you were going to be joyful yeah. in that moment. That's right. And you were going to even though it wasn't your ideal situation, you were still going to be joyful and 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 in the process while still having that I'm, I have, I'm waiting for my greatness. Right. And and, yeah. it's come and I'm going to do everything and be happy and grateful up until that point. And, yeah. and trusting that exactly trusting your instinct. And I, I think that that has a lot to do with it too. There's like extra components. It's, it's not only just being grateful or just being cautious and stocking money away mm-hmm. or just listening to your intuition, but it's also all of those things combined being grateful. Um, you know, and that's what they say about us going into the industry, especially out here or where you are, you know, you're starting in Panama where there isn't necessarily that your industry, but you're creating it. But they say, Oh, everybody you need, you know, you need luck. You need everything to be lined up. And, and really what you need is hard work, because that's either how you make the money or allow yourself to do what you're supposed to do. You need good timing, which is your intuition and listening to yourself and making sure that you're jumping at every chance you possibly can. That feels right. Not every chance, but everything that feels right. And then you also need the luck. And the luck is that phone call that you made in the moment and went, this is something that I love. I, you know, you talked to her and it, came out that I'm selling. So all of those three things have to line up, but it is the joyfulness in making the money and making sure that you're putting that good energy out there. You know, doing whatever it takes doesn't mean necessarily on the outside. It means I had to do for myself. And you know, this in my, in my, my Rocky Horror Picture Show, Mm -hmm. in my singing, you know, I was not an actress. I didn't, like, I did that play because I, I never was like, I want, like, I didn't do, do, do musical theater. I didn't, wasn't even really singing when I started in Frantic Ballerinas. I loved to sing. I had no experience, you know, other than on the street and doing little things. I was never vocally trained. And when I did Macrofest, that first show of Frantic Ballerinas, I was uh, like shaking and I sucked, you know, because, but I had to work really really hard to get to where I was and know my work and know what I could do. But I also knew what I had to do to get there. Mm -hmm. 
This and, is a great transition. Yeah, actually. thank you. Good, good, yeah. go, go. I was going to say, because here, here we're talking about Frantic Ballerinas, which was one of your ambitious projects, you know, and obviously as to your point, uh, out of your comfort zone, because you are a singer, totally. you are a songwriter for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and way before you ever got into a girl group, you were a songwriter and played piano. Yeah. And while you say you weren't, you know, trained as a singer, being a songwriter, you obviously have those melodies in your head and in your heart and, and knowing what you want to do. So, so t- talk to us about how now you have, you know, your three boys, you're living in Panama at this point, you and, and Julian moved to Panama because um, he's an artist as well. Art is just swirling through your life. And yeah you guys moved down there and, and yes, after you participated in the musical uh, Rocky horror that Melanie directed, you went on with some folks that you met and like started a group. Well, when I moved to Panama, I met a lot of Panamanians and that being Carmen and um, my friend Ezekiel and Luciano and you know, got involved in the art community and, and started through that writing songs for musicals. And when I came to audition for for Mel, for well, the first place, the first one was Godspell. And uh, you auditioned for Godspell. I I was in Godspell, but was it? I left, yeah, I left. Oh, that's background. right. That's right. I was going to say because that seems because you're not on stage with us. Yeah. You actually wrote a special part for me and you never filled it after I left. My, one of my best girlfriends got very sick with thyroid cancer and we, re- we thought she was going to die. She had to go through like super intense radiation therapy and I went back to Canada. When I came back and I saw Godspell, I cried. I was so upset that I was not in that play. It was that good. I was, I was so upset. So when Rocky Horror Picture Show came around... Yeah. Um, I was like, I'm going to do this. And she wanted my friend and my friend would have only done it if I had done it. So I kind of was, you know, roped into that, but it was one of the best experiences of my life. And I met Carmen in that process. And from that process, I wrote, I was asked to write some music for a play called Melancholia. And then I met Noelia. Mm-hmm. And like both of them are just outstanding so talented yeah incredible so there's so much talent in Panama it's it's ridiculous but um so I was writing and I was helping um artists that wanted to sing in English and I had built a recording studio now at home by this point and was working you know with uh, uh, some great singers and um you just built a recording studio you were just like Let's do this. <laughs> but my recording studio was in Punta Pacifica, in the, where I was living. And I, you know, got the kids in there, the kids playing drums and guitar, and the kid band going on. And I was working with, with Ezekiel and we were recording there. And then Noni and Noni asked me if she could come to, uh, for me to hear some of her original songs. And so that was how my relationship sort of started with her. And I just want to really song. quick, really quick. I just want to make sure we're getting everybody's name out here so we can tag them at the end of this. You have Ezekiel Rangel. Yes. Yeah. Noelia. What's 
her last name? Rothery. Noelia Rothery. And then Carmen? Carmen O'Neill. Okay. I just want to go in. Go ahead. Yeah. We had Alfonso Lewis in that space. Really? Yeah. So then um, I was working with, with Carmen and Noelia. We, we become friends. I really admired them. Like, I just admired them so much. And they were both in melancholia. So when they asked me to help them, I was like, for sure. Like, we, I think we just had this mutual admiration for each other. And they came over and then then Noni said, do you think that we can use this space to rehearse? We've been hired to sing at a Canadian Thanksgiving dinner. Get the fuck out. And I was like, of course, but I'm <laughs> singing with you. Yeah. I'm Canadian. And I'm going to show up there singing with all those Canadian expats that I know. So of course I grabbed Ezekiel, who was my sidekick with everything at the time. We did everything together. And it was no Noelia, Carmen, myself, another guy named Beto, and Ezekiel. And we did this Canadian Thanksgiving dinner, and it was so much fun. We rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. We sang. We had a great time. So much so that when we were done, we just didn't want to separate at all. And um, so I said to the girls, like, what do you want to do? Like, how do we keep doing this? And they were like, I don't know. And I was like, well, I don't know. Do you want to make a band? Like, just have a fun band. And they were like, yeah, yeah. And that was how Ezra and the Frantic Ballerinas evolved. And Ezekiel sang with us back then, too. And we had big tool skirts. We were like punk rock, pop, folk, flowers, tool, crazy, crazy band with songs like, fuck that shit. And I want to kiss you when I come and, you know, lesbian manicure and fabulously gay. And that band grew with the, you know, with the, the, the LGBT crowd and the gay crowd and the every crowd and the artsy crowd and the theater crowd. And it was something so different. And before I knew it, this thing that was just like a hobby for fun for us to stay together became like opening, you know, doing Chanel, doing Tommy Hilfiger until we ended up opening for Il Divo in the ruins of Panama for like, I don't know, 3000 people. And I'll never forget standing, going on that stage thinking, how did, how did this happen? I'll tell you how it happened because you're a hustler winter <laughs> and it's not, wasn't just like, Oh, we did these little songs yeah. and out of nowhere, everyone knew who we were. You hustle. Yeah. You are too. on the phone. You are putting events together. You have goodie bags for the events. You are marketing yes. and advertising and you are calling folks like you are calling Chanel. You are calling Tommy Hilfiger. It, you, and this is, you know, why and one of the many reasons why I absolutely adore you is because I am absolutely inspired by your tenacity to go for what you want. And it's something where I um, am just a little stagnant in, you know, I, I, I stay in my comfort zone and it's not getting me anywhere. And as to why we, Melanie and I have been pushing each other to do exactly what we're doing right now and not just to inspire others, but also to inspire ourselves uh, along the way. And to be honest with you, your hustle has always been something that I've admired. The way that you go about getting what you want 
is is pretty phenomenal. So what, don't let's not like just be like I don't know how it happened. <laughs> it just we know how it happened. <laughs> but you know what's cool is that one of the things that you're really good at is before El Devo and before the the big concert that you guys had a while ago that you were like we sucked. Da, 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 what happened was is you went I love doing this. I'm going to be good at this. Yeah. It may not be right this second. But I am going to be good at this because I'm going to make sure I'm good at this. I'm going to book these things. I'm going to at least make sure that if I have these small end goals, a concert, a Thanksgiving, a whatever it is, I'm going to be ready for that. And so it gave you these deadlines that made you rehearse harder, call in coaches, make sure you were writing every day when you had that pressure because you made the phone call. You were the one that called and said, I'm going to fucking book this. Oh, shit. Now it's booked. Who's going to fucking come in and help me get ready? And I'm going to have to get ready. I'm going to have to make sure everybody has goodie bags. I'm going to make sure the costumes are ready. I'm going to make sure that my house is ready to make sure all the girls have their tool everywhere they need to be. What costume designer am I getting? What's the best or makeup yeah. artist? Like you guys have an entourage. You put that point. deadline on you so that you could say, I'm going to make this happen by making sure it happens and not just getting back going, but I'm doing all the hard work because I'm good at my talent. Why isn't anybody noticing me? No, you put your talent into action. And because of that, probably, you know, like you said, the first time you were on stage, you were shaking. What the hell am I doing here? You know, but you faced your fears and you went through it. And because you did that, look at all that continues to you continue to reap all of those things. And, and I think that it's just admirable as mothers too, when we're trying to juggle everything and we feel like we can't do it and we're in our comfort zone that we just need to, we need to take that step of faith, right? That leap of faith. It's easy to say, I'm fine. It's fine. We're fine. It's fine. I'm, you know, auditioning or I'm doing this, or I have this on my plate it's fine. I'm tired. 830 bedtime. When you really know that tomorrow you'll feel way more fulfilled if you do that extra hour and a half of writing, of rehearsing, of setting up your space, whatever it is. And also, you know, I have always been the kind of person that really likes to go against the odds. You know, like if I'm told I can't do something and why it won't work, I'm never going to listen to that because I'll tell you, we always have our million dollar idea and how many of us have left doing our million dollar idea because somebody has told us why it's not going to work. And, you know, with this, with the music business, I started that in my forties and I was always told, what is she doing? You're never going to get a deal. You can't do this. Nobody does this past 19, 20, 21 years old. And that made me even more determined because I thought I couldn't do this when I was 19, 20. I was too busy trying to get my mom into a different position and then being a single mom. So why shouldn't I live my dream now? Why should I not do it because you're telling me you can't do it? So I started to understand why a record company would give you a deal in your 1920 because they're putting money into a 25 year project. So maybe I can't get a record deal, but I can get a publishing deal. And if my song is good enough, I can get a publishing deal. And if my material is good enough 
and I learned to speak, sing in Spanish. And I was calling the Spanglish in frantic ballerinas way before this exploded and became so popular. Now we were doing that. And I would call my Canadian record people and say, you should listen to our songs in Spanglish. This is going to be a big thing. And they would laugh at me. And I would be like, I'm telling you, I'm t and now look at what Spanglish is. The frantic ballerinas, we were one of the first and I have really researched this out. And there was not a lot of, of, uh, of bands doing Spanglish and no females. You know, maybe like Selena way back in the day, I'm not even sure, but. Or Shakira, uh, maybe a little Shakira. Sh Shakira and maybe, you know, a few, but not very many. And um, so I think that, you know, for any woman that thinks she is past her point of doing something new, reinventing herself, living a dream. <laughs> you, have, you guys have always done this. But you know, a lot of women write to me and they say, you really inspired me. Like my, my husband left me, my kid, you know, I, I gave up everything to raise my kids and now I don't know what to do with myself and I'm super depressed. What did you do? Uh, and I'm not different than anybody else. I just did it. You know, I got out of my comfort zone. I think consistently learning is going to always keep you young. And really knowing, don't listen to what anyone says when they tell you you can't do something, not ever, ever in your life, because you can. And we get turned off of doing things. So don't tell people what you're going to do. Just do it. You know, and, and, and like if you're coming out with a new product or a business idea or a baby name, don't tell anybody until you can't change your mind because people will, for some reason, always go to the negative of it can't be done or it's been done before. And if I had listened to those people, I would never be doing what I'm doing today. And I thought, I'm not going to care about my age. I'm going to get up there with my 20 somethings. I'm going to sing. I'm going to, I know that I'm, the songs are great. I know what I can learn to do. I found the best teachers. You guys, you know, really like, you know, I had a lot of help on that journey that weren't easy on me. I'll never forget the day you told me when you on stage once you're too worried about being pretty, get your ugly on, you know, and I was like, <laughs> Sorry. Right, I'm so self-conscious yeah. and I, you know, listened and, 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 and it took a lot of work to get there and a lot of people laughing at me in, you know, being like, oh, what does she think she's doing? And, you know, I'll tell you something. When I got on that stage singing the song that I wrote for my my mom, rest her soul, God bless her soul. Um, and I sang Monica's song with opening for Il Devo in the rooms of Panama. I thought, who's laughing now? You know, I did what I, I and after that, shortly after that, we got signed oh, by. Baby. She's got the chills. But it's like that. So I want to say to every woman out there, don't think you have expired. Don't ever think you've expired. This is the most important thing. And don't be afraid to fail. Wow, you made it through the whole episode. We really appreciate that. And you know what else we would really appreciate? If you went to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and rate and review Moms Are Too. It really helps us so much and lets other future listeners get an idea of what they're getting themselves into. That's right. <laughs> Moms Art 2 is produced by Rob Adler with Brooklyn Frequency. Music by Kai Sample. 